Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Delicious Revolution Show. this crazy early hour and tides are always at 4 30 or 5 a.m it's kind of dark as we arrive and the moon is just behind the cliff the lighting is just this magical time and the, the sounds of the water receded and there's the, the little splash and the puddles and sometimes there's a seal gawking in the back we even see a whale sometimes it's really phenomenal it's easy just to look for a long time before starting it's just astounding how i just had to set an alarm to get out there to experience that that's all it took to, to see what's normally underwater. The seaweed grows in its different intertidal zones. Some are in the very outermost, which would be also submerged most of the time, except in these extreme negative low tides. I'm certainly not the first one to be doing this. I'm part of a long continuum of, of thousands of generations that have been doing this and thousands of languages and cultures that have harvested from the sea and the shore. And you really feel it. It's simple and grounding and it brings some satisfaction, a lot of satisfaction to be doing something so timeless. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, Artists and activists bring you in-depth conversations with some amazing people. On this third season of Delicious Revolution, we're bringing you stories and perspectives from the unseen places in food systems, going behind kitchen doors, into underground nests of native bees, under the waves, and to the faraway origins of flavors we love, just to name a few. I'm speaking with people who work with food in places we normally cannot see or don't notice. It's a season of unseen stories of food. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. Heidi Herman started Strong Arm Farm in 2009, originally with a focus on vegetables, and now she offers this ever-expanding selection of specialty crops, including wild-crafted seaweed from the Sonoma Coast. Heidi's also a sustainable agriculture instructor at Santa Rosa Junior College at the renowned Schoen Farm facility. Heidi is a strong-arm woman producing an array of beautiful and nutrient-dense vegetables, and Strong Arm Farm is truly a practice-what-you-preach example. Here's Chelsea's interview with Heidi Herman at Strong Arm Farm. What was the last time you went and collected seaweed? Was it recently? I went out um, harvesting this year on the Sonoma Coast in the first part of May. I think it was in like May 5th through 8th. And it was early. It was still early for a harvest year. And, and that showed in the thickness of some of the varieties, like the kombu was still a little thin. Um, the nori was just a, just about an inch tall when it eventually will grow to be about a dinner plate size. So it, it felt early, but um, the bladder rack, which is an, another variety we collect, um, that one was looking perfect. And it was it was before the the full kind of air bladders had formed on the little pads, and before it started spoilating. What's spoilating? 
Uh, spores. It's in the algae family, the seaweed, and so their way of reproduction is through spores. Um, and so they uh, sporulate, I guess is the vocabulary word, um, little pustules on the leaf of just that way, a way to admit these, these spores into the water system. Cool. I want to see one. I'll have to come sometime. So I'm here today with Heidi Herman of Strong Arm Farm, and um, we're going to start by talking about seaweed. I've always wanted to go seaweed collecting with you. I have bad timing that I can never actually make it when you're going to go, but one of these times I will. But I'd love to hear, how'd you start? And maybe tell us about the first time you went looking for seaweed and what that was like. Yeah, I um, go primarily on the Sonoma Coast up here. In my entire um, time with seaweed is up here. Um, I... Started about 10 years ago, went with some friends that graduated from the California School of Herbal Studies in Forestville here in Sonoma County, and they took me out. I'm like, oh, man, this is exciting. And uh, I was just thrilled. And so it became this kind of annual thing with that set of friends for the first few years. And then um, and then I started my farm, Strong Arm Farm, as a produce and vegetable farm with cut flowers um, in uh, about 2009. And... That first season, I was at the Occidental Farmer's Market as a vendor, and I didn't have much on my table. I was a new farmer, and spring is 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 a little light for a lot of farmers. Uh, things were in the ground, but they hadn't come. I'm like, what else could I, what else could I sell and have on my table? And so, um, I had a lot of seaweed still at home, and so I packaged it up in a little Ziploc bag, and it was really well received. And it wasn't there was no other people vending that product, and. So it was total encouragement, um, just the public demand and excitement and the questions about it. And so then I created a label and in the next week I got better packaging and, and then it just, I got to go out more days than just this one. And so then it turned into, you know, three and now we're up to about 11, 12 days a year I go out and with a, with a crew and it's, I hire people and it's a, it's become a business. Tell me about the days you go out. How do you select those days and? Where do you go? What's it like? Yeah, so yeah, I can. I'm able to pick those the days I w- will be harvesting early in the year. Um, when I get the little tide book, you can get them at the Ace Hardware stores or at surf shops, and I look for the the negative low tides in these little books. Um, and those are the days to go. The negative low tide means the water is really receded out about a couple hundred yards more than it would be on normal, uh, you know, a normal like tide fluctuation. So these are real kind of extreme dates. And there's, there's just a handful of them each year, maybe like 20 dates in total. But getting that to line up with daylight hours and, um, summer, um, two qualifiers. Uh, so it kind of narrows down to, yeah, the 12 days I go out this year. Um, and so I'll, I'll select those dates early in the year of when I'll be working. I set them aside and I start kind of recruiting for helpers um, of what days I'll be going out and uh, the processing days. And they're always around the June solstice is like the peak historical lowest tide of the year. Um, so mid-June. Um, and May and July are also pretty great low tides. Um but similar to land plants, these um, algae that are in the ocean respond to day length. And so uh, daylight hours, the, kind of the quality and quantity of hours. And so that in June, they're at their peak. And so similar to land plants, a lot of them kind of are in their peak before you know, they get, uh, before they go into reproduction stage or in, they get battered by storms in the fall and winter. So 
There are also great low tides in December, but they're in the dark and it's the the algae is tattered and kind of uh, worn out by then, not looking optimal. So I'm a surfer, a really bad surfer. And so I spend a lot of time looking at seaweed, not from waves. And <laughs> I noticed that time of year, I mean, the, this time of year, right, in, in um, the beginning of summer, that the seaweed kind of feels different. It has kind of this lush quality to it that it doesn't at other times of year, like you're talking about. So what is like the, what is the life cycle of this, of the seaweed that you harvest? Like how tall do they grow? What do they look like? What's the texture? Right. Um, I wondered those same things. How are they all different? Um, so there's each variety has its kind of a lot of different characteristics that are unique to it, similar to land plants. Like say where a fern would grow is different than where a cactus would grow. And so, well, that's of course in relation to water, but um, so the the seaweed grows in its different intertidal zones. Some are in the very kind of the outermost, which would be in the deeper water, which would be also submerged most of the time, except in these extreme negative low tides. Um, so out there is the kombu and the wakame. And even further out is the bull kelp, which, which just never kind of leaves or exits the water. And so back in on the rocks where I go is the kombu and the wakame. And that they're, they're perennial seaweeds, um, and so they they start from a big kind of root mass, which is called a holdfast, and uh, they're about I don't know five to ten feet long. Um, each individual kind of algae mass, um, and they emerge from this kind of unified uh, base, um, and then further up near the shore is the, where the nori. And bladderwrack exist. And nori is interesting because it's only annual seaweed, or not the only, but one of the ones that I collect. That um, it's an annual, which is it's just so being a, a horticulturist and a, and a land plant grower, uh, I just was a, delighted to find that there's annual and perennial sea vegetables too. So that was real thrilling, and I could comprehend their life cycle really easily and relate. Um, so the al- the nori, as I mentioned, it being a an annual, it grows definitely in response to the day length um, grows a lot faster than some of the other varieties. And, um, and so that, so that one um, has little spores that will kind of affix to the rocks each year and then grow from that. But the other ones that are perennials, they'll, they'll kind of stay as this permanent mass, kind of like a large oregano plant. It just kind of stays there and gets, creates more fronds and stems out of it. And so right now I'm looking at two of these bags that you harvested here, ones of nori and ones of kombu. And as I know from eating them, nori is like much more delicate, right? So is, that sounds kind of like what you're describing with an annual and a perennial. I think of those kinds of different plants, like a lettuce or an oregano plant. How do they attach to the rocks? Like, how do you cut them? How do you know where? Too many questions all at once. <laughs> All right. Yes, you're right. The I relate to kombu is similar to like a lettuce leaf. Yeah, it's it's kind of the size of a large lettuce leaf, and it and it's it's real thin. It actually it's one cell thick, and it's really slickery in the hand because it's it kind of feels like a wet saran wrap in a sense. And it kind of when it's fresh, it kind of has that same sensation in the mouth as well. Um, but when it dries out, it turns into this kind of black tissue paper kind of substance. Um, and the kombu is more, and it okay. Back to the nori, it's it's mild and it's high in protein, so 
it has a kind of like a mild kind of like you said like lettuces have a mild flavor and the kombu is the kombu is um thicker it's it's kind of leathery like i've related to it like a jerky <laughs> and um and it does take some more chewing and it cooks longer it takes a longer time to kind of disintegrate in a meal and it has a stronger flavor and it it imbues a lot of algins or alginates and that's that um uh, quality that's real um, slippery that turns a watery soup into something thicker um, and that also is able to carry a lot of flavor and this umami flavor as well it's it's rich in um, naturally occurring occurring glutamates cool i have so many questions about that but i think i'm gonna jump back to farming when you started doing this I love that this story has to do with having not enough to sell at the farmer's market. I can totally relate to that feeling and have heard that fear and that just can see the look in people's eyes in about, you know, mid-April where there's like a bunch of kind of droopy looking broccoli that like made it through the last rainstorm or something like that. What what else do you grow on your farm? And can you tell us about Strong Iron Farm? Yeah, um, we started Strong Iron Farm in Sebastopol on Furlong Road. It was a certified organic farm. And I actually, I, I landed there just from a Craigslist ad for a room. And so I was renting a, a room there, a, a little studio. And then the landowner had a lot of certified organic farmland. And I asked if I could you know, access a little quarter of it to have a little garden. He's like, oh, please, I'll plow up this whole section for you. And so I, I said, okay, and thank you. And um, he, so he was delighted to see the land kind of back in farming and um, was very incredibly supportive. Um, and so, and another friend uh, worked for a seed company. And so she would have a lot of seeds available in the back of her truck that, that she would just take to um, trade shows and the like. And she's like, oh, these are last year's seed. Take what you want. And so I had all this organic seed from... Um, and access to land. So it was just too easy. I was felt like I was spoon fed this farming opportunity. And so I started and with a, a friend I had at the time and, um, we started off. Yeah. We just came up with the name Strong Arm Farm and signed up at the, a couple farmers markets. I was vending in Sebastopol and Windsor and Occidental and we had a couple restaurant accounts. Um, I had a lot of farming experience before then. Um, working for other farms and managerial roles and delivery and farmer's market. And I, I had each kind of role um, independently. And now this was a chance to to call it mine and have my own farm and kind of wear all those hats at one time. And so, yeah, there was a lot of pride and, and fiascos and long hours. and But just that, that um, it's mine feeling. And that's really extremely motivating and, and the happiness that gets brought versus being a, just employed by another entity. But it seems like for a long time you have either taught or, I mean, so you have a master's from Sonoma State and your thesis was about experiential agricultural education. Does that mean that you've taught agriculture a lot or? Right. During that, while I started the farm, um, I was attending grad school at, at Sonoma State and um, I, all the, I'd been teaching sustainable agriculture at at Santa Rosa Junior College and I wanted to the I knew farming well and I just didn't I wanted to strengthen my ability to teach it better I felt that was where I needed some learning um so yeah with that um I still have my job at the junior college I teach 
various classes there throughout the year. It's a good complement to actually doing the farming, is to be teaching about it and to use examples of of pluses and minuses from my experience that that I've had and seen other farmers and to visit always to visit farm other farms on field trips and. Um, there's that's totally invaluable for uh, beginning students uh, as well as hugely experienced farmers to just see how other people are are running their businesses and their growing techniques. One of the things that um, it's common to hear from farmers is that you get really stuck on the farm, only knowing the thing that you do, and it's difficult to get out to see what other people are doing. And it seems like by you having flowers and by teaching and by doing this foraging, which we'll come back around to, like you get to be out a lot interacting with these different parts of community, I think that offer some perspective, right? So maybe let's start with talking about teaching. What is a good, what is good agricultural education? Like, (laughs) just from your opinion, (laughs) no pressure. Right. I mean, I, that's a huge question, and I think the answer would be different for each person, but um, I consistently hear back from them. We want more hands-on experience, and and hence the experiential aspect of my studies is is doing it. Yeah, there's so there's you can read books and magazines and blogs and podcasts and the like, and you just – yeah, it definitely comes down to, to doing it, and preferably on – through internships or at a school farm where you're allowed to make mistakes or can you're not losing money from making mistakes I should say it's you may be losing your employer some money <laughs> but um, it just to test to practice and to see and to what happens when and to be at a farm for a season uh, this would be over maybe at least six months to see what happens when I planted these um, you know, broccoli is too close, or what happens if I didn't thin these carrots and I thinned this row, and just kind of to just see that observation. I, I again, you can read about that stuff, but just to f- see it firsthand, it really sets a, a visual um, impact because the people are learners of different skill sets. Some need need to hear it, some need to see it, some need to feel um, viscerally what what they're learning, and so just kind of exposing them to that whole spectrum of, of different styles of learning is, I believe, one technique of, of really solidifying an, uh, um, what c- the information that can be carried on about farming. But it, it also takes your own inspiration and your own creativity and your own memory and your pride and your your energy. Um, like, what are you awake at, at 6 a.m.? Like, th- those, like, what's your motivation? And that's, that's hard to teach. And... Uh, it's just yeah some even just doing having the dirt in your on your nails and the getting up early that that that's part of seeing if this career choice is right for you maybe can you describe shown farm and i i think that something that's so interesting and so valuable about hands on work not on your own farm is this ability to experiment with scale right so your farm is two and a half acres here at strong arm and shown is how big is Schoen, actually? Right. Um, Schoen is a ranch that the junior college owns, Santa Rosa Junior College. It's 365 acres in total. Um, the produce and crop farming part is 12 acres. Um, there's an additional part that's apples and olives. So in, in total, that that would be about 17 acres. Um, so yeah, you're right. Scale is a, is a huge aspect. They 
they have the option of teaching tractor work there. And there is a tractor class where you can gain that experience. And that's extremely um, a career preparatory skill um, for higher ability and um, at vineyards and at small farms. Um, but students wanted a smaller scale. What, what can I do by hand? What can I do for my backyard? I don't agree with, you know, some don't agree with tractor use and as a, as a means for tilling the land or for the economics that are impractical to afford a tractor initially or for the fuel consumption. There's all, that's, that isn't the only way. Um, so we are converting a part of the garden to handwork only. It's kind of a no-till and this double digging and forking of the soil with a higher compost addition. But the the ranch itself also has about 100 acres in pasture, or about 100 in vineyard, and then a, another 100 plus in forest, kind of a timber site. All the sites are used completely by um, the courses that are offered there. I guess I'm talking about scale because I think you do some really interesting things here with scale in terms of doing foraging and having this small, really intensive farm that grows so many different things. Right, it's really biodiverse here. And was it always like that, or? Right, this site I, I mentioned that I started in Sebastopol, and I was farmed there for about four, no, three years, and then um, moved up here and um, started farming with my boyfriend, and so we've stayed here, and um, so I've been here about five years. So we've developed the land a lot. Um, we've. Um, kind of expanded onto even a little part of our neighbor's land um, with permission. And um, and kind of with one well, we're able to kind of produce, support these different crops that we grow here. And yeah, we have um, the cut flower operation. And primarily this one called tuberose lily is, is a predominant cut flower crop that I grow. It's extremely fragrant, kind of in the gardenia jasmine vein of, of delicious scent. And that comes in in August. And um, then some other cut flowers through a local col- um, flower mart that's just opened in Sebastopol. But yeah, the produce, the produce was a, a leading, like the leading crop of the farm. But seaweed has, has kind of eclipsed that. I've, I've taken, I've grown less and less vegetables each year. And this, cause since the seaweed business has increased financially and kind of the time it takes and the, the fun that it provides and the kind of the unique offering in our food system. So and the encouragement that I should keep increasing my, my seaweed aspect of the business. So currently, I just grow two vegetables that I wholesale out. Uh, one is a particular hot pepper called the ahi and uh, fresh hibiscus. So kind of oddball, little specialty items, but I, I garner a good price for them and and they can grow up in the heat up here in Hillsburg. I kind of love that. That's kind of amazing to, to end up getting more and more and more seaweed every year and grow a few kinds of flowers and ahi peppers and hibiscus. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that also, I, I think, really indicates like having a good business strategy that adapts Right. And, and I think both Evan and I have spent a lot of time with farmers in Latin America. And we, through conversations, we really find that people who have a real passion for something kind of keep naturally gravitating towards it. But I mean, which in maybe in your case is seaweed, right? Like that it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so let's talk about foraging. Let's talk about that idea that that's kind of like on the tip of everybody's tongues right now. But 
what is it and why is it fun and what excites you about it? Yeah, the the foraging, it's, yeah, is it agriculture? Not not quite, but it is, I have the same buyers, the same chefs that, that buy the the peppers that would buy the seaweed. So it's, it's in the same marketing vein and it's, you know, units that you sell by the pound and the smaller increments and an invoice. And it, it goes through the same farm kind of business structure in a sense, but, um, uh, and I, I like working with chefs and, and eaters and that, so that's a really delightful demographic that, that I relate to and I want to stay in that vein of whatever next is on my plate. But, um, yeah, foraging, what? Yeah, it's, it's a type of gathering and it's, I don't, certainly don't do the, the planting or the necessarily even the cultivating of it, but, um, it's, it's stepping in of what's, what's available here. And, and Sonoma County is, is astoundingly rich in a lot of different species. Um, and especially on our coast, there's, there's a lot of the fisheries out there and the shellfish, the abalone and, and crab is, is phenomenal here. Um, it's it's really grounding to be out there and just have the one tool. And I have a, a shears, actually the same shears that I harvest everything with. It's a Felco kind of harvest shear, and that's it's on my hip where it always lives, and um, that comes with me. And it's still the right tool for the job. Um, and it's it's really meaningful to collect this um, really nutrient dense food. And in the instance of particularly the bladder rack, that's high in iodine and um, iron. Um, it's medicine, and so it's it's a I'm gathering food for the kind of the rest of the tribe in a sense. Like I'm bringing it inland, and historically it's been it's been a trade item that it's brought further inland as a bartering vessel item. And talking about that um, inland and tribes, it's exactly it's we're not I'm certainly not the first one to be doing this. I'm part of a long continuum of of thousands of generations that have been doing this, and. Thousands of languages and cultures that have, have harvested from the sea and the shore, and you really feel it. And and I don't know how to put that into words, but it's it's when you're out there, it doesn't matter what gender or age or language I speak. It just it's something that's it's part of a continuum, and it's very simple and grounding, and it brings some satisfaction, a lot of satisfaction to to be doing something so timeless that's happened so many times before that's not related to anything else I do kind of that's part of our modern society. Who do you run into when you're out there being part of this special group or tribe of people who collect seaweed? Is it is it just you and your volunteers or are there other people out there at dawn scraping stuff off of rocks? Um well, I take offense on scraping. I'll I'll, do, I'll cut because that that keeps the plant regenerating. But um, I don't see many other humans. But uh, there's a lot of other creatures that I'll run into. Um, sometimes there's abalone divers that come onto our beaches. Our, I mean, the beaches that that me and my my friends and I will go to. But no, we're they're really hard to get to beaches. They don't have. Uh, names. They're usually at a oddball mile marker on the freeway with a little pullout up, up Highway 1. Um, and there's a trail. And I you just, just scramble down. There's, there's an awkward little steep 
descent onto the rocky beach. And then, like I said, that when the waters receded in these negative low tides, it's it's really abundant. You see this acres or a, I don't know, like a football field of all these different types of seaweed that are there. And it's, it's a real hodgepodge of so many different kinds. And it takes a kind of a careful eye of which ones am I looking for? And there's, there's so many other varieties out there. And so if the the kombu has a certain color and a certain space in the intertidal zone and um, the length and the shape. And there's a lot of things that aren't it. Um, so it's it takes some ID, but um, and then how to harvest them also is, is a certain technique that I've learned from, from reading and from other harvesters of, and also just by practice too, of where do I cut so it'll keep growing and where this, these meristem cells are, they'll keep replicating and enable the plant to still put on some growth that season. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I'm glad you corrected me about scraping. I, you can't really scrape with Velcos and have them last, and you can't really... <laughs> I get, well, anyways, that's a whole nother conversation. But um, are you... Do you see yourself kind of as a steward of these tidal lands? Or, um, you know, what's the role of, like, keeping that tidal land as a healthy place, as a harvester, and encouraging good practices. Right. Um, I part of, I mean, a lot of people that go to the ocean, they consider it their take. Like, oh, what, did, what was your take today? And it, it's a little odd word for me. Um, yeah, I am foraging, and I, yes, I am taking something away. I'm, I'm filling my backpack and walking away from the ocean, but I also take trash, and I'm also really watchful, and I'm only harvesting if there's an abundance of each variety. And each time I go to a beach, it's and and with the, you know Felco's in hand and a backpack, and I'm ready. I gotta there's that the language of just like all right, I don't know what I'm going, what's going to happen. I don't know what this beach will provide. Let's just take a look. And um, it's a nice just kind of to exhale and take it all in. There's like the, 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 the beautifulness of it, but also like, is this a good day to harvest? Is there abundance? What varieties am I going to focus on today to not show up with an agenda? And so that's, I guess, stewarding in a sense, but it's also kind of um, not letting the greed of running a business be the, the main driver. It's, it's just being aware of what's, what impact I do have and, of me and all the other hands that I've brought with me and just kind of educating them and really watching how they're harvesting. So in a way that, that it will return. And we're not the only ones enjoying the seaweed. It's a, it's a life source for a lot of different species as a food, as a, a place to tuck and hide. And we're, it's not a place humans naturally are or need to be. And so it's, we're the, we're the oddballs and we're the guests. So it's it's recognizing that and if if the limits aren't abundant or if there's um, the situation calls for like a more of a conservative approach then i'm the one that should back out first so yeah it's it's acknowledging when we depart too that kind of a thankfulness um some i offer people in the group to to say if they have something to say around that or to share something that was um highlight of the kind of the morning or what what did they experience that they didn't anticipate or um, yeah, just different observations. That's really uh, enjoyable to hear how other people take in the morning of harvesting. And, and also it's, it's at this crazy early hour. It's the tides are always at like 
4.30 or 5 a.m. And so that it's it's kind of dark as we arrive and the moon is just, you know, you know, slipping behind the cliff and the sun and it's the lighting is just this magical time and the, the sounds of the water re- receded and there's the the little splash and the puddles and um, it's yeah there's sometimes there's a seal gawking in the background and we even see a whale sometimes it's it's really phenomenal um, and it's it's easy to just be just to look for a long time before starting. So that's kind of the the stewarding and the carefulness. Um, but other motivations for being out there is um, it's definitely exploring. You're it's it is the the edge of the continent, and it's a real visible place on a map. You're just at the edge, and there's this permaculture theory of, of life is amplified at the edge, and they bring it up in ponds and meadows, and there's examples of this. But it's I feel it's particularly rich on the on the shore. These are the con- confluence of two massively different ecosystems that are meeting right in this one tiny little swath and and we're insert ourselves right there and all those species that that rely on all that water and the oxygen are are totally unique to that one little zone and that's that's uh it's just astounding how that we're you're, you know, my little, I just had to set an alarm to and get out there to experience that. That's all it took um, to to see what's normally underwater. Um, and I still have lots of questions. I, you know, I'm not a marine scientist and I, I've talked to a lot and I've, I've researched, but uh, there's, I think even all, you know, the, the ocean is just so much mystery still. And um, I'm still kind of intimidated a little bit by all those unknowns but it's also a driver to like oh how how you know how am i going to answer that question or who has that that answer or is it just observing or and it's also intimidated by the the force of the ocean too and it's kind of threatening capacity and it, it could definitely take my life if i am not careful and it's the waves are coming in and there's this constant like looking over your shoulder literally and um and just like, oh, we got to move in. Waves are coming. And there's this kind of necessary swiftness. And uh, it's really slippery. And so there's there's kind of – and you have a, a sharp harvesting device in your hand. And so, yeah, it's there's – it's it's not a safe environment. But um, you can, you know, you can uh, make it so. You can be more mindful of, of these forces that are out there. Well, thanks for that beautiful description of being out there. That I feel like I'm totally transported to that place uh, in thinking about foraging in so many ways. But what is what are the similarities between cultivation and collection of seaweed or foraging? Yeah, I've, right. I wondered kind of how did I make this leap, and how does it feel still so comfortable and part of my similar skill set? And because it is a food, it's a really nutrient dense food, and more so than land plants um, in that sense. But um, both require just kind of awareness of the ecosystem. What are their specific needs? Where in the ecosystem does this plant thrive? Is it a kind of say on land? Is it a shade or you know full sun? Does it need, you know, boggy or rocky soil? And so similar to the algae out at the ocean, like where in the ecosystem does this specific algae thrive? And um, even if it would be placed 10 feet underwater or in a low, lower part of a tide pool, it wouldn't thrive. It needs to be on the kind of the upper, the shoulder of a rock. 
So that's to me is real um, a fun uh, observation to see these consistencies of where these species kind of uh, excel and where they kind of optimize and where do they where have they gravitated to. Um, so yeah, I have a, a horticulture degree from Cal Poly, and yeah, we're taught about yeah how to the layout of a landscape and. And kind of using the you know a taller shrub and what can you place underneath it and how those two um, kind of species can play off each other and create a system an ecosystem for the for the lower species, and so I find that that's also replicated in the sea in that some algaes live upon like the blade of a kombu, and so they're they're utilizing that surface as their ecosystem of another plant so. To me, that's just kind of, uh, it's a beautiful landscape out there of all these colors, and they're just, they're just mixed perfectly, in a sense, or like a, what are those, a spring mix salad, you know, there's just, oh, there's three of these, and, the, you know, six of that color, and a little red, and a little green, and a brown, and it's just mixed perfectly. Um, so, the aesthetics of a, of a functioning landscape um, is similar. Um, there's techniques on how to harvest, um, same with land plants, um, kind of where in the plant, what are the edible parts, what parts are tasty. Like, yeah, you could eat a broccoli stem, but it's eh, it's a little thick and fibery. And, and, and same with the seaweed kind of stalk. It's, eh, it's a little, un- it's, it's not delectable, but it is edible. Um, it's just diff- an uncomfortable texture in the mouth. And so those, that's similar. Um, they're seasonal, like I talked about the the June peak. So I have to wait until June, and I may run out of a supply, and that's that's kind of bumpy on a business end to to run out, and I can't just create more widgets. Um, I have to wait, and that's educating the customer. And that's same with with cut flowers. If a bride wants peonies at a, at her you know October wedding, that's that's not possible. They they only bloom in April, um, so or, or early May. So. These kind of seasonal education of the customer and when the the harvester can go out and, and harvest. Um, so they, yeah, they're both nutrient dense, like kale. It, they call it the the kale of the ocean. This this nori that you can actually um, oil them, similar to like baked kale leaves, and you can just oil your nori leaf and bake it right next to your kale and and mix them in the oven together, and it's delicious. So food wise, they're or their uses are sometimes really similar. So to me that, and the tools um, are similar. I got, you have the same kind of Felco handle and handle. And um, the post-harvest handling is also um, really unique for this species, but it is for, for like cilantro or basil. You can't get basil leaves wet or they brown. Um, you know, they're each has their kind of way of handling it once you harvest it from the plant. Um, so with the the nori and kombu, I, I rinse it and it, quickly because it starts it'll start releasing all those minerals and then lay it out on screens. And once it's dry in that form, um, within an afternoon, astoundingly, it'll dry up completely. It'll lose all that water and be in stable kind of dried form that it's can hold for five ten years um, within the same afternoon of harvesting it. So that's it's kind of swift post-harvest handling. Um, it needs to get put in the refrigerator right as after you harvest it, or it starts rotting. Um, so 
that's the, some of the, the similarities. Um, I use my walk-in cooler that I use for produce and cut flowers for seaweed. So all these kind of three live in there <laughs> communally. Um, so that's surprisingly, there are a few, you know, quite a few overlap of these two kind of cultivation versus collection. And what about scale? How much seaweed do you harvest in so when it's wet, how much is it? And then when it dries down, how much is it? Yeah, good point. It's uh, about um, 90% water. So, for instance, last year, um, 2015, we harvested 2,400 pounds of wet seaweed. And so let's let's go through that. So that was each blade gets an individual hand cut. Um, it all gets lugged out on your someone's back um, up the cliff. It all gets rinsed by hand. Um, it all individually gets laid out on screens and then puts, once it's dry, it's it's shrunk a bit by then and, and gotten much lighter. Then it gets stored um, in a temperature-cooled space, um, temperature-regulated and um, moisture-regulated with a dehumidifier so it doesn't reabsorb moisture. And then it's ready for sale. So those are the kind of the steps and um, the, the shrink, it is puffy. And so it, it does take up still a lot of space in a, in a kind of your storage facility or whatever space one creates. Whoa, that's a lot of work that has to happen really fast. That's, that's kind of amazing. So on a normal day, how, how much seaweed do you collect with a team? Yeah, good point. So yeah, so, so last year there was the 2,400 pounds. This year there's going to be less. Um, there's just different uh, quantities out there this year. I think maybe around 1,500 pounds will be seemingly appropriate for this year. Um, but I'm just just started. We'll see. So on a normal day, how, how much seaweed do you cut? So on a normal day, um, when I bring out a group, it depends how many people I bring out. Um, between like four and eight people come out, um, some friends, hired hired people, volunteers, kind of a mix, uh, will get about 200 pounds. Um, I ask that if you come along, that if you're able to also haul out about 30 to 40 pounds on your back, I provide backpacks. And so that's comfortably what a body can carry out on your back. Um Sometimes if there's a, a CrossFit trainer in the group, they'll maybe make two trips up the up the cliff and then we're able to harvest a bit more that morning. But um, yeah, between 100 to even if there's a big group, say I once had like 12, 15, 14 people out and um, we, were, we got like three, over 300 pounds that morning. And while that's seemingly great, um, it's also, wow, we got to process all this the same day. And so I, <laughs> I it was just a added to the kind of the volume of all the whole process. So keeping it around yeah, 150 to 200 pounds seems right for the workload in a day. And so we, like I said, that low tide is around 5 a.m. So we harvest for maybe two hours and, you know, around that. So we're done by like eight or so, eh, somewhere in there. And then the, you know, just kind of regrouping, just having some enjoyment time on the beach and then being back at the ranch here around 10, 11 a.m. And then that's when the rinsing and that process starts. And then the heat of the day has picked up as well, which is key for kind of the speed of drying. That's a lot. <laughs> 
Three hundred pounds of seaweed is a lot of seaweed. That's a that's a quite an operation. But you were just saying that this year you anticipate there will be fifteen hundred pounds, maybe. And last year there was twenty four hundred pounds. That's also a huge range. How do you have a business that has a huge range like that? Yeah, it, it's. I mean, the it's creating customers and and reaching out and developing relationships and. Um, amount of fares or ways I sell it to, to chefs. And at some point I'll run out and I, I just have to be okay with that. And if they need to buy, can be, stay consistent with an item on their menu, they're going to have to find another supplier. And yeah, that's, that's not ideal, but I, what, you know, nothing I'm fine with those are the, being the facts. It's something I just have to get used to. And, and hopefully those customers will um, appreciate buying Sonoma Coast harvested items and appreciate my that I rinse mine. Some other harvesters opt not to do that. So different levels of, of sand um, are present in different products. Um, so yeah, it's just uh, it's a buyer's buyer's domain. They can choose who they what they, what happens then. Well, that seems like that kind of ties back into your education related thing right right? so it's you have your team and you're you're teaching people how to collect their seaweed which i definitely want to hear about how to collect my own seaweed but you're also working with restaurants and customers um to educate them about why they should pick sonoma coast seaweed and what that means to continue to support that kind of foraging happening here versus most seaweed which is harvested in japan right is that true or it's it you can farm seaweed too interesting in in um japan korea and china coastline there's a lot being farmed in the small bays there ireland has a lot of seaweed the nova scotia kind of in these colder um northern waters there's a lot being collected is there a difference between cultivated seaweed and forage seaweed i no, it's the same species, or they can be. They they grow a different species of of the kombu over in Japan, but it, it's a cousin. Yeah, it's they're similar. No, it'd be the same. Cool. <laughs> um, but your your point about the education is um, that's also building kind of excitement and getting people on board of the seasonality of it, and like, oh, you only carried so much out on your backs, and that's. Oh, it, it, uh, it's understanding this process and why are there limits and why can't, you know, just more, why don't you go out tomorrow and I want to come harvesting with you this weekend when it fits, you know, my schedule. And so it's like, no, we got to wait for these tides and they're not coming till, till late May. And so it's, we just got to wait and I'll, I'll, I'll let you know as soon as it, I bring it in. And so there's this kind of anticipation and that's, it's not the case with a lot of foods anymore. Um, so that's, that's exciting to me, especially as a, the flavors that we're used to in our mouth, like, you know, peas in the springtime. It's, yeah, we can certainly buy peas year round, but of course, yeah, they're shipped from all over. But, you know, a pea from your garden is, is a delight. And so, so kind of, I know good chefs understand that of, of what's, there's a limit and there's times for, for good items. I'm a real pea lover, so you pick the right vegetable as the example. I've been shelling them every day because I lo- I'm just totally love peas. But I think that's pretty unique to foraging, right? So so many of those conditions are outside of your control. I'm thinking about mushrooms as another example of foraging, where in lots of parts of the world, like seasons are really defined by these things that are foraged, and people look forward to them all year. And actually, on the years where there's less 
it's kind of more exquisite in a certain way, right? I don't know if that makes the taste better or something, but it's rare. And it, that's kind of a amazing lineage to be a part of. Yeah, there's the the answer of no, we don't have it. And then that's where the conversation could, that's what they, that's all they asked is, do you have, you know, where's, I want Nori, I want six pounds this week. And they're like, no. And so that's the like, in that same breath, just, oh, but it's coming. I'm going to wait till the May harvest and getting them on board to the, the season and the, let's build that excitement of the, the pea example. Yeah. And so it's, I'm, you know, it's kind of sharing my excitement and, and bringing them on board of, of what, what seasonality means, um, like the mushrooms or even bringing up examples. So they, it really brings it home because that those are food items that can be related to. And same with herbs. I, I do some wild foraging of different herbs and, um, like the nettle harvest. It's only in, you know, a small window of time when it's, it's leafy enough, but it hasn't gone into flower and you got to know the secret spots and, and f- knowing those, those are, those secret spots, and I, I emphasize the word secret because people kind of are a little more uh, hoarding of their of their discovery sites um, for certain herbs and mushrooms. And um, so, talking about yeah, those collected herbs, and and sometimes it involves hopping a fence and kind of the legalities. Well, that's the the topic here, and and so. Uh, Going out to the ocean, yeah, we all have that access to the ocean. And um, uh, I, because I sell seaweed, I um, am required to get a license from Department of Fish and Wildlife. And that's about $140 a year for that license because I sell commercially. However, all citizens can harvest up to 10 pounds every day. And so 10 pounds to get, bring a visual, it's about the size of a kind of a handled plastic farmer's market bag. Um, and that's a lot. Um, that's And when that dries down, that's about, again, what, about one pound. And that's what a human would probably eat in a year um, of seaweed. So it's just that one day will kind of perhaps even meet your needs. Um, I will say that nobody's ever checked. Um, there's not much, regu- you know, active regulation with it as there is with abalone. Some say you need a fishing license, oddly, to collect those 10 pounds, but that's not, hasn't been brought up. You know, that's not, there's uh, different opinions on that. But um, yeah, the Department of Fish and Wildlife serves that. And I have to declare how much I, I take, what my harvest is for the year, and pay a, a one penny per pound on on how much I take. So, Yeah. $24 is what I paid last year. It's it's a pretty small tariff. I think it's easy to kind of forget how many of those things we actually do look forward to all year round that um, have all these variables. But then the other part what I wanted to talk to you about was the secret spot in this idea. Foragers are famous for the secret spot. They're also like pretty wing nutty about the secret spot. And they're all right. Um, but you can get into some pretty heated controversies about this secret spot thing. So is it the same with seaweed? And if one were to find their own secret spot, how would you do that? Right. Um, the secret spots, it's it, there. I had never come across, have, I have not come across another harvester on the beaches I've gone to. So, um, I think I believe the whole Sonoma Coast is fantastic seaweed 
harvesting opportunities. They, you'd look for a rocky beach. Um, sand is not where seaweed lives. So when the water recedes, just where the rocks are, um, there are um, marine protected areas, these MPAs, and there's a, a one around um, Bodega Head is one spot, and around the mouth of the Russian River is another protected spot. And further up, kind of every 20 miles, it seems, there's this kind of... So you can't harvest in those zones, but um, those are happen to be not really desirable zones to even harvest seaweed. So just pick your own beach. And um, I mean, I go to places uh, north of the Russian River. That's where I opt to go. But it, they're a little hard to get to. Their access is difficult. Um, the Mendocino beaches, there's a lot more harvesters up there that do it professionally and just casually. And given the amount of of beach access versus the volume of people that harvest up there, there's a little more, um, I wouldn't even go so far as to say competitiveness, but like a, a feeling of, of, hey, this is where my little zone and you get that beach and I get this one and some sort of light agreements, friendly agreements get made. Um, so yeah, it's, but there's so much out there, especially kombu and nori. It's t- so abundant. So I th- I think our coastline could could handle more individuals going out and collecting for themselves. And do you think there's anything to learning your spot or knowing what's there? Are there any good resources maybe that you have for people IDing different kinds of seaweed or um, knowing how to cut seaweed? Uh I, but the, I go to four different beaches myself. Um, so I have a little sketch of on these beaches where the, a good kombu patch is or this little aspect of the cove has been, you know, a nice outbreak of or out outcropping of nori. And so I have my own little notes, but they, they do change from year to year. I think just kind of ease of access. I'm thinking about mushroom spots. And how you know, that's my only comparison here, right? Is that people, when you talk to people about mushroom spots, it's like some people are like, it's only under oak trees. And other people will be like, it's only in this place. And everybody's right, right? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's also the case with seaweed is you find the place that works for you based yeah. on how you collect seaweed or yeah. something. Yeah, I, I guess I pick my the four beaches I go to with you know for different reasons for ease. It's it's within a you know an hour's drive. Uh, there, there's parking. <laughs> the access is is doable. Um, there's space on shore where we can kind of have a base camp. Um, they're wide enough to for a group of, of five to ten people to all be in different zones and not have a, a high impact. Um, they're safe. Um, so those reasons, and I feel it's, you know, that it's really clean, the, the beaches up there, there's not much industry, um, the turbidity, the, the oxygen in the water also um, is able to maintain a high uh, amount of algae too. And so that that's kind of also helpful around, that's why the rocky kind of, rocky shore kind of pushes more oxygen into the water. Um, and the, there's not much uh, runoff of of creeks and stuff so the water's real clear and it has high oxygen and those are two things that that these um, algae need to to thrive 
That's actually some great criteria. So that's that's awesome for for helping people figure out where to go. But um, this summer, it sounds like you're teaching a whole bunch. So if people want to learn how to go uh, or want to learn more about seaweed, I don't know if you take people. Um, those are some things that are coming up for you. And then you're also teaching about sustainable agriculture later on the summer. So could you tell us what those things are and how people can follow along with you? Okay, yeah, this summer, um, summer 2016, I'm teaching a class through a group called Forage SF. That's $90, and that's on July 23rd. It's also a Saturday, and we'll, we'll harvest in the morning, and then we'll, we'll break for a lecture on the, sh- on the beach. And it won't be in a slideshow format, but it will have a kind of more organized discussion about, about seaweeds there. And, kind of, and that will review the identifying how to harvest, what to look for, kind of how to process, kind of answer all those questions, and hopefully have some food at each of those too. That's all seaweed based. I'm also attending the Heirloom Expo as a vendor. That's in mid September. I think it's the 8th, 9th, and 10th perhaps this year. Um, that's at the Santa Rosa County Fairgrounds. So those are the kind of the seaweed based activities this summer. Also this summer, I'm teaching a class at Santa Rosa Junior College at the Schoen Farm facility called Intro to Organic Gardening and Food Production. Um, this fall, there's a I'm teaching one called Direct Marketing. So yeah, that's that's what this year looks like. Thanks, Heidi. That's that's been really great talking to you. I can't wait to get out there and find some seaweed. All right, thanks for for airing my story, and uh, it's been a pleasure listening to your other podcasts. Thank you. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening.